Well, it's still morning, isn't it? Yes, it is. I told the group this morning, things came a little early for me today. I usually stay up till about 2.30 in the morning. It's a bad habit I got into when I was in grad school. And uh, I'm still usually up by 8.30 or something, but I had to get up at 6.30 this morning. So I quote for you a very well-known philosopher from the last generation, Red Skelton, <laughs> who said, late to bed and early to rise makes me sleepier than most other guys. <laughs> and with that, I'll introduce our topic, the resurrection of Jesus. I'm going to be in 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to be in two texts almost totally today. If you want to kind of keep a bookmark or something in both texts, 1 Corinthians 15 and the very end of Galatians 1, the very beginning of Galatians 2. That's two texts. In the originals, they weren't separated. Uh, we added the separations later so that people could, you know, when your pastor says turn to something, you're not flipping through the whole book to find his paragraph. But these are great topics. When you ask somebody, how do we do history? Secular history and Christian history are done the same way in terms of research. Research is done the same way. I asked my son one time, how do you know George Washington was the first president of the United States? He was only about eight years old. He's a uh, restaurant manager today and he's 43. <laughs> Those things happen. And he said, George Washington, we need some books. It's okay. What kind of books? Old ones. I said, okay. How about people, who would you talk to if you want to know about George Washington? Now, I had to kind of help him along through this dialogue, but here's what we came up with. Well, you'd want to interview Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, John Quincy Adams, James Monroe, Madison, how about Martha? Bet you Martha can tell you some things nobody else knows. Those are the kind of people we would like to interview. And if you're Paul, and in Galatians chapter 1, you go back to Jerusalem to interview the other apostles on the resurrection, who are you going to go for? Because he went for them. Peter? James, the brother of Jesus, and a little bit later, as we'll see, John. Now, these four, Paul, James, John, and Peter, are easily the, most, the four most influential Christians in church history. Paul went back to interview them, just like we might interview Jefferson, Adams, and Martha, to learn about George Washington. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to do an interview of Jesus, you might say, through his apostles. Now, I'm going to step out here, and the rest of my message is going to be walking off a timeline here. I'm going to paraphrase 1 Corinthians 15 for you in a little while, but let me first mark off the parameters. I'm going to call this ground zero. It's the crucifixion of Jesus. 
Now, the most popular date for this event is 30 AD. But I'm just going to call it ground zero because I want us to be able to measure to and from this event. In other words, how far are we away from this event? Because we want early eyewitnesses. Now, I'll stop right there real quickly. A critic will say, yeah, but you have to acknowledge early eyewitnesses can still be mistaken. They can be. Sometimes early eyewitnesses lie. We know that. But what is the alternative? So I'll say to the skeptic who says that, what do you want? I'll take the early eyewitnesses. Do you want non-eyewitnesses from centuries later? Is that the kind of people you want to deal with? You do deal with those sources. I'll take the disciples. Okay, he knows what I'm, where I'm going. And we're using the best possible sources. Now, if somebody asks you, how do I know that the gospel is true? 1 Corinthians 15 opens like this, the first two verses. When I came to Corinth, and we'll give you a year for that in a little while. It's 51 AD, but let me just, I'll tell you how we get there. Paul said, when I came to Corinth, I gave you the gospel. I, in my writing, I put a footnote here, footnote, gospel. And my footnote would say, whenever the, the New Testament defines the word gospel, three facts are always present. Other things are also mentioned, but three are there all the time. The deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Brandon already mentioned them. Deity, death, resurrection. They're always there. You go, well, I don't see the word deity in 1 Corinthians 15. Right. I'm using a catch-all term, deity, for titles for Jesus, like the loftiest of the titles for Jesus. Well, Jesus is called God in the New Testament. But the names he's usually given, Son of God and Lord. And some people, by the way, say that Lord is the loftiest of the titles for Jesus, maybe even loftier than the word God, because Lord and the New Testament is the, if you translate it into the Greek Septuagint, that the Old Testament was translated into Greek. And Lord was the term they chose to translate Jehovah. That's heavy. Jehovah in the Old Testament is translated Lord in the New Testament, and Jesus is called Lord dozens of times. So, if you're going to define deity, we have to have, de we have, to have uh, sorry, define the gospel. You have to have deity, death, resurrection. You've got that. And let me tell you something right up front. If you've got that, you can handle or not be able to answer, handle or not handle, any other question about Christianity or the Old Testament or New Testament. But if the deity, death, and resurrection are true, then part two of the gospel, if you've said I do to Jesus, I think that's the best translation of the Greek word believe, the Greek terms, uh, the verb, noun, pistis, pistuo, in the New Testament, it means to go all in. I, my Greek professor interpreted, uh, uh, translated the word uh, pistuo, he translated it commit. So the John 3.16 would read like this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever commits himself to him should not perish but have eternal life. Yeah, I mean, the word is believe, but the Greek word believe is much stronger than ours. 
and it, I think probably the closest is our I do. And you know what's interesting about using I do as a synonym? All the way through the Bible, marriage is the, the, the picture that Scripture uses of the gospel and our relationship with Jesus. In the Old Testament, right, the Old, the, the Old Testament saints were the bride. In the New Testament, the church is the bride. And the father in both testaments, the father and son, are the groom. They always talk in marriage terms. And when somebody had fallen away from the Lord, like in the Old Testament, God said, you've been unfaithful to me. You've been like an unfaithful spouse. So it's really interesting that I do is sort of the, what the Bible uses. Okay, so two sides. Who God is, what he's done. Deity, death, resurrection. And what have you done with it? Two sides. We're going to talk about both a little bit today, but mostly side one. Mostly the death and resurrection of Jesus. I may say a couple things about deity, but mostly death and resurrection. Okay, this is the beginning. Ground zero, Jesus died. That's creation. That's 2018, way off the stage. Ask the average Christian, how do you know this event is true? And the average Christian goes like this, argues this way. <clears throat> if they know apologetics, they'll start with the Gospel of Mark. Now, I'm going to use critics' dates. They're not that much different than evangelical dates. But I just want to make, the reason I'm using critics' dates, I'm trying to make the point. Even if I use their dates, it does not change your argument. So you win with evangelical dates, you win with critics' dates. Either way, we're going to get our conclusion. All right, so you go to Mark, about 70 A.D., or how many years after ground zero? You guys tell me. 70 A.D. is how many years later? Just 40 years later. That is early. Critics date Matthew, about 80 A.D., or how long? 50. Luke, 85, or how many years later? 55. And everybody, critics and believers, put John at about 95, or how many years later? 65. Our oldest gospel is just 65 years after ground zero. I'm going to tell you folks something. That alone, 65, is almost unparalleled in the ancient world for early eyewitnesses. But what if I told you by the end of this lecture, we're going to be, have the message of the resurrection all the way back to ground zero. All the way back, we're going to go. But I just want to say, at this far end, you could hardly touch this. There might be, you could maybe number them on one hand. There's almost nothing in the ancient world. Well, it'd be, it'd be more than that, come to think of it. It'd be more than just one hand. But there's very little in the ancient world that is only 65 years later. This is early. But critics like to say, ah, the Gospels are too late. You can't look. Come on, come on, come on. Look how late this is. And whenever I hear that, I'm just thinking, dude, you know what you're telling me? Besides the fact that you don't want to believe, you're telling me you don't read ancient history. Or if you do, you don't care, and you're going to continue misrepresenting it. But chances are you don't read ancient history, or you would never say this is too late. 
I was debating a guy one time, and there are two pulpits, just like this, two lecterns, up on a stage. It was in a graduate school, and we were talking, and the guy was over here, the skeptic, the atheist, and he said, the Gospels are too late to tell us about Jesus. I said, really? Yeah, way too late. He was kind of angry. Way too late. I said, well, let me ask you a question. How much do we know about Alexander the Great? Oh, he said a lot. He said, are you sure? Yeah, a lot. His father's Philip of Macedon, king. His personal tutor was Aristotle. I like that combination. Greatest military mind, big name philosopher. As a young man, he was in front of the Greek army. They marched east. They conquered the, the uh, Persians, the number one strongest nation, army at that time. Kept going, passed India. He died as a young man, about 30 years old. How much do we know? The guy said, yeah, all that. I said, do you know how old, how, how, let's say how young, our youngest source for Alexander is? And the guy said, no, I don't know. I'm thinking to myself, you sure don't. <laughs> if this is Alexander's death on our same scale, if this is Alexander's death, here's the earliest, I'm going to pick the straw man, here's our earliest source for the life of Alexander the Great. Now, there are earlier ones, but we don't have them. They're lost. Here's the earliest source we have for Alexander the Great. Actually, I'd probably have to go up the stairs and back to the edge of the auditorium. Hey, you know what happened once? I was in a, I've done this lecture almost 2,000 times. And in one church, I went out a side door right here. <laughs> the door locked. <laughs> I had a knock on the door to get back into the sanctuary. <laughs> the earliest source for Alexander is just short of 300 years. And the best sources for Alexander Arian and Plutarch, four and a quarter to 450. Oh, John, John is way too late at 65. 450 is about right. You see, see how, how prejudiced people are when they teach the New Testament, or like I said, if they do know the answer, I doubt most of them do. If they do know the answer on, on Alexander, they're just not being honest. Now, you go, well, why are you picking a bad example? <laughs> That's not a bad example. Actually, Anders, uh, Alexander the Great is one of the better examples. Here's another kind of example. So I'll use a religious one. Got a book on my shelf by a Buddhist with a PhD. He was, until his death, he was a professor in England at a prestigious university. And he wrote a book on the, on the Buddhist scriptures. And here's how he starts his book on page one. He says, basically, I'm paraphrasing, he says to my Christian readers, we don't have what you have. 
You have the words of your Lord. We don't. You have the words of those who study under your Lord. We don't. You have the words who study under those who study under your Lord. Yeah, we don't. In fact, you ready for this? We don't know what Buddha taught. There are different schools of thought, he says, but I'm not going to get involved and tell you which school of thought Buddha taught because all it does is create wars and heartache. I won't answer the question because we don't know what Buddha taught. I'd like to be up here today and go, hey, welcome to the Church of Jesus Christ. We don't know anything about him when he lived. We have no good sources, and we don't know what he taught, but this church is about him. I'm not trying to be nasty, but if you thought Alexander was bad, you know what the guy went on to say? He said, virtually every source that I'm going to cite in this book, Buddha's source, is written 600 to 800 years after Buddha lived. Twice, more than twice, Alexander's dates. So before we start, I'm giving you two paths to argue for the resurrection. This is one. Use the Gospels from Mark to John and argue what they say about the deity, death, resurrection of Jesus. They are good sources. And we would, at least evangelicals would argue, that all four books are written by apostles or those who studied under apostles or those commissioned by apostles like Luke for Paul and Mark right under the, uh, Peter's teaching. So, great sources. Now, for the rest of this message, I'm going to step over here and give you a second argument for the resurrection of Jesus, which is much tighter and much more evidential. You go, more evidential than that? When it's already the, one of the best things in the ancient world? Yep, much tighter. What are you going to do here? I'm going to use Paul's epistles. Okay. Why? Why? Why is, well, first of all, for starters, Paul's earlier than that. It's believed by virtually everybody that Paul was martyred about 63 A.D., if Paul's martyred at 63 and the first gospel is 70, you know these are earlier, right? Well, what do critics say about this? Now, I'm not trying to make fun of people, but the, the young people from 15 to 25 that are part of the growing number of atheists in this country and who tend to believe, often tend to believe that Jesus never lived, they may, I don't know, maybe they're, I picture them, seriously, I picture them blogging in their basements of their parents' home. But they'll tell you they're scholars. They often tell you in their blogs they're historians. Wow, they throw these words around lightly. A lot of them haven't even started high school, I mean, haven't even started college. But they're scholars. And they'll tell you, I don't believe Jesus lived. And so Habermas, here's their response to me, and a lot of them have responded to me. Here's their response. You are cheating. Tell the people you're talking to you're cheating. 
You say you're doing this historically, and then you go right to the Bible. <laughs> Let me tell you something. Bart Ehrman, atheist New Testament scholar and the best-known critic in North America, he goes right to the Bible. And if you don't quote verses with Bart Ehrman, he will quote them. Because skept true skeptics, ones who are scholars with PhDs who teach in major universities, but they're not believers, they have no problem with you going to the New Testament because they do it. What's the difference? The guys in the basement don't know what they're talking about. And they're the crowd that believes Jesus doesn't, has never lived. The scholars, Bart Ehrman says, I do not know a single professor in an accredited college, university, or seminary who believes that Jesus never lived. None. Now he says, I do know two scholars. Actually, I have dialogue with both of them, had debates with both of them. He said, I do know two scholars who are well-credentialed who don't believe Jesus lived, but they don't hold, they don't hold teaching positions, not accredited teaching positions, neither one of them. That's, that's Bart Ehrman. So scholars do not question Jesus' existence, except for those two. But the ones in the university position do not teach that. And they will use verses. You go, well, why are they going to use verses? The best thing I'd come up with is, I understand, I'm no biologist, I understand spiders make spider webs. And you ever wonder why a spider doesn't get caught when it runs across the web? Because a spider knows what strands to step on and which strands not to step on. It can do so very quickly. Why does Bart Ehrman quote dozens and dozens and dozens of verses? He knows where to go. In what sense? He's only going to quote verses that are well evidenced. The other ones, he thinks you're naive for using them. But he'll give you dozens. Like, like what? Of the, of the uh, 13 books that bear Paul's name, Critics are going to, critical scholars, are going to unanimously concede seven of them that you can use. They'll give you seven. You want to write papers for them in school? You want to cite these seven? They will not ask you why you're citing the New Testament. And the seven they grant are the most important Pauline epistles. Like what? Well, here's the seven. Bartleman calls them unanimously accepted. Bartleman calls them undisputed Pauline epistles. Romans, 1st Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, 1st Thessalonians, and the little one-chapter book, Philemon. That's it. Let me do it again. Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, 1st Thessalonians, Philemon. Use them. That's the difference between the, the people who say God, uh, Jesus, doesn't, Jesus never existed, God doesn't exist, they're angry, and they don't think you should use the Bible. They're in their own world. Scholars who are skeptics, they can be atheists, they will grant everything I'm doing here. And I call this the minimal facts argument. The way I argue for the resurrection, I can take their data their data and show you Jesus was raised from the dead. Now, 
I, I will often say in state universities, and I'm not trying to start fights, I'm just being, I smile when I say it. And I'll say, I call the minimal facts argument a heads I win, tails you lose argument. Either way you want to do it, we win. Now you don't have to trust Christ your savior, but either way, we get a resurrection out of the deal. And here's the argument. First Corinthians chapter 15, Paul starts out, when I came to Corinth, I preached the gospel to you. Now, let's think about this for a minute. How early would Paul have to be that you know, he could recognize everything? Well, I think John can. I, I think there's some people in here, we had a show of hands, some of you remember events, what we could call uniquely unique events after a University of Chicago philosopher who used that phrase. Some of you in here can remember things from 65 years ago. In fact, how many of you can remember things you're sure about from 65 years ago? Only a few hands, but there's about a dozen hands up there that I see. 65 years ago. All right, Mark from plus 40. How many of you remember events that you're sure about? Graduation, marriage, your first child, some fantastic event, coming to Christ. How many of you remember things you're sure about the details from 40 years ago? 40, how many of you? 40, all over. Many, many, many. All right. With 1 Corinthians, we're going back to just 25 years. And Paul says, when I came to Corinth in plus 21, I preached the same message to you. I probably shouldn't identify your pastor who told me so I don't get him in trouble. But he told me, he said, next time, because he heard the first message, he said, when you get to the 21 point and you, 21 years, and you ask people how many remember things from 21 years ago, just remind them. That's the last time the Dallas Cowboys won the Super Bowl. <laughs> now, even though that's not, you know, I'll bet you if you're Dallas fans, you'll remember that. It's plus 21. You might get a little, oh, remember when so-and-so ran for touchdown? No, that wasn't him, that was him. Oh, yeah, but I remember someone ran for a 52-yard touchdown. Yeah, you got that right. All right, so we might mess up a little bit you know, we might miss up something here or there, but you got the fact down, including the big one, Dallas won the Super Bowl, okay? Paul, from 21 years, says Jesus was raised from the dead at 21. So I told the group this morning, I could stop right here and say, hey, I've got more time to lecture, but y'all have any questions? I'm done. I could say that. Why? Because 21 is so close to that event. And Alexander is 300 to 450. Buddha, 600 to 800. 21? All right, what do you think, questions? But you know what, we're gonna keep going because we can get all the way back to ground zero. I'm just saying that John is great at 65. In terms of early eyewitnesses, how much more with Paul at plus 21? Again. Here's the date 1 Corinthians is written. Paul said, when I came to you, I preached this. And that event, some people say it's the most clearly 
established date in the New Testament. It was 51 to 52 AD. But Paul says the magic words in verse 3, I delivered unto you that which I also received. I gave you what I was given. Now, you know, sometimes I'm in a church and I'll say, did you guys all get that? I gave you what I was given. You go, yeah, I got it the first time. It's not real heavy. No, listen, I gave you what I was given. Yeah, you can go on. No, think about this. Let me tell you why that's so important. What's Paul doing? 1 Corinthians 15, 3, he's passing on tradition. I gave you what I was given. Why is that important? Because any teacher passes on tradition. We pass on history, data, even the Super Bowl 21 years ago, we pass on tradition. Josephus tells us that's how the Pharisees taught, by passing on tradition. Bingo! Paul was a Pharisee. Why is this so important? Because in the New Testament, there are dozens of little snippets that in the Greek read like this. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Now, they don't rhyme like English, but there's a cadence to them. In fact, I have an NIV back here, not the best translation in the world, but it's a good one. Um, the NIV sets a lot of these out in verse. They didn't do that years ago. Philippians 2, if you turn to Philippians 2 and look, it's probably set off in verse in your Bible. That's believed to be an early Christological hymn. Why is that important? Because now it looks like up to 90%, probably 70 to 90% of Jesus' listeners were illiterate. They couldn't write their name, and yet if you want to preach to them, you have to give it to them in the form they can use, but they can't write, they can't take notes, they can't read your text. So what do you do? You put the gospel in a da-da-da-da-da-da-da form so they can memorize it. Let's try it. Second example, Jack and Jill went up the hill. There you go. Can you teach that to a preschooler? Yep. Could they repeat it perfectly? Yep. Can they write their name? Probably not. But they know Jack and Jill. All right, here's a religious example. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that... There you go. Now... If, you, if that song is verse, like Philippians 2, Christological hymn, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, can you teach amazing grace to somebody who can't write their name? Absolutely. And if they can't read or write, that's how you're going to teach them. Jack and Jill, row, row, row your boat. Amazing grace, just as I am without one plea. That's how we're going to teach people who are illiterate. And that's how they did it in the New Testament. There are dozens of little passages. You know what? You read another one this morning. 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says, 11.23, I delivered unto you that which I also received, how the Jesus, how the Lord, he said, the same night which he was betrayed, took bread. He broke it and gave thanks, saying, this is my body which is broken for you. After that, he took the cup, and he said, but notice that phrase, 11.23, is introduced, 
I gave you what I was given. I'm passing on tradition. And tradition is the da-da-da-da-da-da-da. This is really cool. But you know why that's fantastic? I'm not just giving you information. You know why this is cool? It guarantees the message from here to here to here to here to the Gospels, here, here. It guarantees the passing on of tradition correctly. Dot, the dot, the dot, the dot. And so Paul says in verse 3, this is a key. I gave you what I was given. How that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, was buried, rose again, according to the scriptures, rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, and appeared. And this is the longest list of appearances, continuous list in the New Testament. And at the end of that list of, of five, Paul adds his own name. Last of all, he appeared to me, says Paul. But da-da-da-da-da-da-da, Paul records it, but it's not Paul's material. It'd be like if I recorded Jack and Jill went up the hill. I recorded it, but I didn't originate Jack and Jill. So we can trace the history by tracing these da-da-da-da-da-da-da passages. So what do we get? Paul says, I gave to you what, what I received. When and from whom did Paul receive this material? The consensus New Testament position. Consensus. Forget the guys who blog in the basement. The consensus New Testament position among PhDs. I don't care if they're atheists. I'd rather use atheists, actually. There's reasons for that. I'd rather use the skeptics, the atheists, the agnostic, the Jewish. There are a number of Jewish professors in the New Testament, and they're not Christians. I'd rather use their testimony, because they're unbelievers. And they're going to tell you, that Paul got this material, and the consensus view from believing and unbelieving New Testament scholars alike is that Paul received this material at plus five. Go, well, that's all well and good, but all you did was say that. How do I know that's true? Let's do the math. Let's go back to ground zero, and Jesus is crucified. How long does Acts 9, the first of the three, three descriptions of Paul's appearance on the road to Damascus, Acts 9 is the first. How long is Acts 9 after Acts 1? Well, New Testament scholars say it could be anywhere from one to three years. Acts 9 is anywhere from one to three years after Acts 1. So if Jesus dies here, Paul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus at plus one, plus two, or plus three. Let's take an average. Paul meets Jesus on the way to Damascus at plus two. In Galatians chapter one, verse 18, Paul says, three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to meet Peter and James. Here's the math. Jesus dies. Plus one, plus two, or plus three, we're saying plus two. He meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. Three years later, he goes to Jerusalem, spends 15 days with Peter and James. Two plus three, five. Do the skeptics buy this? They sure do. It's the consensus New Testament position. 
You know what Bart Ehrman says? Back to the best-known skeptic in North America, atheist New Testament scholar. Bart Ehrman says, this is one of the two strongest arguments for the historicity of the life of Jesus. That what Paul, maybe the best thing Paul gives us, better even than the testimony about his, his own appearance, Paul knew the guys who founded the church he knew the founding apostles and he passes their testimony on to us, as I will show you right now. So Paul is there. Bart Ehrman says, yep, Paul's there. About plus five. And what's he doing? In Galatians 1.18, there's a Greek word. Hysteresi. Hysteresi. The root word to translate Greek, to, you have to translate into English. Greek's not the same uh, alphabet. <clears throat> translate into English, transliterate, it's called. You, this is the root word, histor, historici, I'm sorry, historici, root word, H-I-S-T-O-R. It's the root word from which we get our word history. How was it used in the first century? The word histor is used of somebody gathering firsthand information. I used the example this morning, Brandy picked me up at the airport. We've been talking this weekend, hurricane season's almost on us. You turn your news on at night, and maybe local ABC television or something has a reporter in Jacksonville, Florida, and here comes, the here comes the hurricane, and the guy's right there, and his, wind his hair's blowing, and he's getting soaked, and he's got a raincoat on, and his hood's up, and that's hysteresi. That's checking. It doesn't have to be that complicated. It can be something as much as uh, interviewing you about going to the store yesterday. But the idea is investigating something right there. And Paul says, I went up at plus five to check out this message. Cool. He's there. And he's talking to Peter and James, the brother of Jesus. Now, if I'm Paul, here's my first question. I'll tell you guys what Jesus looked like to me on the road to Damascus if you tell me what Jesus looked like to you on Easter Sunday after what we call Black Saturday when everybody's terribly depressed because Jesus is dead now. We're ready to go fishing again. And all of a sudden Jesus appears. I'll tell you my testimony if you tell me yours. And they exchange data. The whole key to the book of Galatians in which this occurs is about the gospel. Get it right. Don't mess it up. Don't add. Don't subtract. That's heresy. Get it right. And so Paul tells us, they're there. He talks to them. He says as Galatians 2 starts, just a handful of verses later, he says, 14 years later, and critics put this at about 48, it's only 18 years after the cross, he said, 14 years later, I went up to Jerusalem again. Man, Paul's a good researcher. I mean, really. He goes up to Jerusalem again, and he had a meeting with, Paul's there, Peter's still there, James, the brother of Jesus, is still there, 
And guess who the fourth person is? John. The big four. No one is more influential in the early church. Two apostles, Peter and John, and two who become apostles later, James, the brother of Jesus, and Paul, both of whom were unbelievers until they meet the risen Jesus. They're there together, and Paul says, Galatians 2.2, I set before them the gospel I was preaching to make sure I wasn't running in vain. And he says just a few verses later, five words in English, they added nothing to me. What does that mean? They added nothing to me means we were all on the same page. In fact, that's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 11, after just telling about the appearances to them, he says, whether it is I or they, this is what we preach and this is what you believe. Paul's saying, you don't want to get the testimony from me? Go talk to Peter. Go talk to James. Go talk to John. I don't care. You're going to hear the same thing. Isn't that cool? Our Folks, that's our faith. That's the door that unlocks the kingdom. That's the yellow brick road to the Emerald City. And you can get it from any of the four? Yeah, because they're all telling the same story. That's tight. Okay, we're back here. Don't make the mistake of thinking, yeah, we got it down to five years. That's only when Paul heard their testimony. If they told Paul their testimony, they had it before Paul, fair? If I'm talking to you, I know what I'm going to say before I tell you. But it took a while. Paul gives it in 1 Corinthians 15, 3. That text is in a da 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 form. It's a creed. It takes a while to put it in that form. Or let's do it from the cross on. It takes a while to put it in da-da-da-da-da form. The disciples have to start giving testimony, and they pass it on to Paul. But notice what's happening. Paul gets it a plus five. They had it earlier. Has to be in da-da-da-da-da form. Ground zero. James D.G. Dunn, non-evangelical New Testament scholar, is influential as any New Testament scholar in the world. He says... The creedal form, the dot da dot da dot da da form, was probably the same year Jesus was crucified. Now he didn't say that. Look, what he says is months later. Well, we know Jesus was crucified in the spring. Months later still means it's the same year. Jesus crucified. The creed. Same thing. They were preaching it. Paul got it. Our early eyewitness testimony goes all the way back here. And it's not just anything. It's not just when my grandson won the soccer game last week or, you know, I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan, so. If, that, if winning the Super Bowl is important to you, great. Not a big deal to me. It's not just anything. This is the center of our faith. This is the keys to the kingdom. This gets you into the celestial city, if you say, I do. And it's back here. So Paul ends this wonderful text, 58 verses, and here's what he says at the end of the text. 
he starts trash-talking death. Well, that's a little strong, right? No. Read the commentaries. He's getting in death's face. He's getting in Satan's face. He's quoting two Old Testament passages from Isaiah and Hosea. Isaiah and Hosea. And I'm juicing this up a little bit, but this is what Paul's saying, using his words right there, 1 Corinthians 58. He's going, death, where's your sting? Huh? You got something for me? Where's your sting? Where's your victory? You're going down, big guy. You're going, what? I know, you can hurt me. I've been hurt many times. But you're losing. Look at the score. Well, on your watch, he was raised from the dead. Now what do you say, big guy? That's what he's saying. Death, where's your sting? Grave, where's your victory? You have no more sting, he says. The only sting you have, he says, is sin, and you can hurt me, but you can't take your life away from me. The doors of the celestial city are open, and we can walk through them. Folks, if this is the center of our faith, and this determines, what's a good definition of heaven for the celestial city? I would define heaven as fellowship with the God of the universe and with our believing friends and loved ones forever. In other words, it's the best family reunion ever. And it goes on forever. You go, well, I don't like family reunion. <laughs> okay, okay, that's another matter. <laughs> okay, but potentially, it's a good family reunion with the God of the universe and with your Christian loved ones forever. And it's based on this kind of data. No wonder people want to say things like, oh, you guys don't have anything, you don't have anything. They don't want to deal with the data. I leave you this morning with the words of our Lord. John chapter 14, verse 19, because I live, ye shall live also. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for this truth. Lord, it's the greatest message in the world that comes with the best evidence in the ancient world. Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you for what you've given us and that you didn't leave us to flounder and give us evidence for other things, but not this. Thank you for putting the best evidence in the most important place. Thank you for eternal life. And Lord, we pray that if anybody's not said I do to you here, they consider today to complete the circle and say I do to the Lord of the universe. In whose name we pray, amen.